0: So. so, how's everything on your side? Uh, okay. Uh, hours there, hours back. You know, I'm taking public transportation. You got to remember, I'm taking the bus to the path, taking the path to the Oculus, taking the R2 decalb and then the B train to Sheep's Bay, and then taking a bus. So, yeah. Although, I met a Martian. <laughs> what? <laughs> So I'm walking around her neighborhood, you know, and, and I guess I made the wrong turn. And because the last couple of times you've been taking a Lyft or a Uber there, but I'm going by myself. And cash is kind of low lately. So I said, oh, well, yeah, I'll do the public transportation. I used to do that. And this guy's like, show me your eyes. You? Came out of nowhere. I'm like, what? He says, <laughs> we can recognize each other by our BD eyes. We're all aliens. We infiltrated the government, we have infiltrated, you know, it's funny, <laughs> people who are insane, they sound so lucid, and like, genius level of insanity, <laughs> and I'm walking away from this guy, he goes, we, have, we can recognize each other, show me your eyes, I'm like, get the fuck out of here, <laughs> so I went out for a cigarette, like two hours later, he's still walking around, come out of nowhere, <laughs> I think you're one of us, I'm like. Are you, are you a fucking alien or what?
1: <laughs> it's the Alex Jones podcast. He's an avid listener. <laughs> I'm
0: like, what the hell? Well,
1: well, at least that's something to write in the scrapbook.
0: Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. So I've been, I've been kind of beat. So my mom met an alien. I don't know. There was like a day trip. They, they came up with this like two days ago. We're going to Lindenwald. I'm like, what is that? And then I look, a near Cherry Hill. No. Oh, we can go to the city and take a greyhound. Do you know that bus takes two to three hours? Do you know that bus takes two to three hours back, and it costs money? But you don't want to go. Meanwhile, I'm thinking, hey, if I now go to places to myself, I can relax. You know, I'm like, oh great, yeah, I'm looking forward to sitting in a bus for a couple hours. <laughs> <sighs> anyway, then we'll get into the show. Shouldn't be a long one. All right, let's roll. <laughs>
1: sent to weird scenes inside the goldmine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Tonight, Charlotte Rampling on the new and improved Third Eye Cinema slash Weird Scenes Network, now on Podbean. Good evening and welcome to the, oh I think it's the third episode of the eighth season of Weird Seasons Inside the Goldmine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Drop in for a spell and join me, Doc Savage, and my co-host, Mr. Lewis Paul, as we discuss the beloved, the hated, the weird, and the wonderful world of cult film, music, television, and more. So tonight... Tessa Charlotte Rampling, like Diana Rigg and many others of her generation, began her career as a 60s fashion model. After bit parts in such well-remembered films as A Hard Day's Night and The Knack and How to Get It, she stepped into a major role in the seminal swing London kitchen sink drama Georgie Girl, which got her noticed and brought over to Italy, where she showed up in two World War II-related epics that made her famous, and perhaps unintentionally, helped kick off a certain infamous and short-lived exploitation sub-genre in Italy, France, and the U.S., Visconti's The Dand and Liliana Coveney's The Night Porter, making minor waves and memorable, if brief, appearances in everything from existential counterculture opuses like Vanishing Point, and much-fated dramedies like Woody Allen's Stardust Memories, to neo-noirs like Farewell My Lovely and Angel Heart, and cheese fests like Zardoz and Orca. Tonight we celebrate the cool, yet sexually charged Emma style appeal of the lovely Charlotte Rampling, only here on weird scenes, that knowing smile, that piercing gaze, the Tao of Charlotte Rampling. So, good evening, again, uh, I'm Doc Savage, with me is Mr. Lewis Paul
0: Hello, Lewis uh, Hello, all. actually, I, I, I want to commend my co-host there that's, that's, you really thought about how you were going to describe her, and that's that's brilliant No, that's that's perfect, dead on Well, thank you Yeah, uh, I mean, for those who may not know who she is or what she looks like That's that's really good description, and of her talent So, yes, welcome to the show, and we're going to get right into it You know, there's a lot of ladies of cinema that we have some mutual
1: appreciation for, but even limiting things to the more classy end of the spectrum, there aren't many who really comport themselves in such a way as to seem quite proper, yet with a sort of sly amusement and projecting an intensely sexual vibe as two women one of these ladies we discussed many a time previously, Diana Rigg, whose Emma Peel is practically untouchable, is an ever-watchable, almost universally beloved and desired icon of cult television, and the other is the subject of tonight's show. So, here's yet another X-Men Hellfire Club connection. Tessa was a mid-80s neo-black queen, who later got repurposed as the lame sage, those of you who have kept up with the comics. Claremont and Byrne do love their British character actors of the 60s and 70s, because, of course, (laughs) what's her official first name is Tessa Charlotte Rampling. So, the least changed a lot over the decades, but back in the late 80s and early 90s, one of my favorite authors was Anne Rice, and not only for her, at the time, Vampire Trilogy, but for her Anne Roekelair and Anne Rampling books. <laughs> Likely Punishment of Sleeping Beauty, Exit to Eden, which was utterly destroyed by Hollywood making it into a weird comedy with fat, nasty Rosie O'Donnell and fucking Dan Aykroyd of all people. Talk about the last two people on earth you want to see exploring S&M and Belinda. And there's a reason that I bring this up because the former pseudonym is pretty damn obvious as a nod to the decadent poet Charles Baudelaire. But the latter, well, apparently Rice had a thing for the lady and saw her as her own idealized self, much akin to the cool, classy desirability and sexuality that the British actress was practically unique in projecting. Again, Riggs' Emma, appeal aside, and Rig didn't necessarily carry that demeanor with her to other roles. Rampling did better. She actually sort of lived this out in her private life, as we'll get to along the way. You just can't fake this sort of thing. There's a great quote she gave. I generally don't make films to entertain people. I choose the parts that challenge me to break through my own barriers. I need to devour, punish, humiliate, or surrender seems to be a primal part of human nature, and it's certainly a big part of sex. To discover what normal quote-unquote means, you have to surf a tide of weirdness. Now, wow, <laughs> that's a woman after my own art. She really gets it, and it does tie into certain aspects of her life and career as well, but I yeah, and we'll get there along the way. Apparently she came from some measure of class, which may help to explain things a bit. Her mother was a painter, her father was an officer in the military, but also an Olympic gold medalist in the long distance relay race, I believe. And it was actually, he was in the same 1936 Berlin games that Jesse Owens so perturbed the hosting Adolf Hitler by winning. She also went to boarding school in France and did cabaret as a teen. So you can see the level of sophistication we're talking about here. She started off her film career while still working as a model, doing uncredited walk-ons in films as big and representative of the swing London of the era as a hard Days night and then that and how to get it before getting her first major role in Georgie Girl. So unless you've got anything else to add on that, that's a pretty no, good lead in. So we can, that's,
0: that's, yeah, let's let's go into it.
1: All right, so after those two films, which were 1964 and 65 respectively, we get to Georgie Girl, which was 1966, and what I thought of this one was it was a terrible, terrible British kitchen sink drama masquerading as a sort of light comedy. That awful song that's running through your head right now, Hey the Georgie Girl, is courtesy of the Seekers and is more or less acted out in real time during the opening credits while it plays. Lynn Redgrave is fucking enormous in this one those who knew her more from her 70s and 80s heyday should be as shocked as I was to see her several stone heavier plain and dowdy and screeching her way through some awful torch song at a party. It's painful. She's a kindergarten teacher who runs around spouting nursery rhymes and shit out of Highlights for Children, which is supposed to show her as a, quote, fun-loving free spirit or something, but she's anything but. She goes into crying jags at the drop of a hat. She tries to put the make on her sexy flatmate's guy, only to be more or less laughed at halfway through a kiss. You know, she's a real piece of work. Meantime, said flatmate is a young slow-eyed Charlotte Rampling who's a concert orchestral violinist, but clearly really lives for sex and fun. There's a throwaway line about how she taps her stupid roomie for cash they have abortions on a regular basis and she's always running out the door and hitching rides from different guys but for whatever reason she decides to start banging this one loser hangs around the flat all the time more to play kids games of red grief than the buff rambling the truth be told and she gets knocked up by him Out of sheer insanity, she decides to go through with the pregnancy, and they have an effective shotgun wedding, so it's not born a bastard, but obviously she's not the marrying kind, or at least not the child-rearing kind. Being poor fucks, they actually all keep living in the same flat together, and while Rampling decides she wants to put the damn thing up for adoption before she even sees it, then she's getting a divorce. Damn, talk about flighty impulse decisions. Lucky or unlucky for the new guy, Redgrave has been getting all maternal herself and has managed to console the new, if short-term, hubby with some chubby chasing BBW action while his new bride's in hospital having his kid. Nice guy there. So with both parents having no interest in the kid, isn't this a great movie? They just brought it into the world. Redgrave winds up taking care of it, only for Difus to step in and sweep it off to the tender mercies of the state-run orphanage. Yeah, that makes loads of sense. This forces Redgrave to take up a geriatric James Mason fresh off Lolita mind, who actually has been Creeping on her ass since she was far from legal, he actually drafted up a contract where she marries him in exchange for the good life of money and finery, which she originally rejected, but then decides to go for it when it turns out that's the only way she can keep her erstwhile flatmate's kid as her own. Yay! Like I said, it's terrible. It's highly misguided, but you know, Rampling looks good and seems to be having fun whenever she's on screen, for what that's worth. What's your take on this awful piece of shit? Uh. <laughs>
0: It's very strange for it's, for for what it is. It was very popular. I mean, yes. uh, at the time, um, yeah. I, I, I this. I heard that this is the the time period where counterculture movies and slice of life movies, and the no one was making them more variant than the British, except this being a British film. It's directed by an Italian, <laughs> Silvio Narrazzano who didn't really work all that much before he ended up in american tv in the 70s he did strange movies he did this uh, one oddball thing with uh, redneck with franco nero telly savalas and the then aging mark lester who uh, it's a, he, you know his, his cv is like maybe less than 10 feature films and a lot of television but this movie is just, I don't know, I always found it unlikable. I yeah. saw it way back when when it was like the thing to catch up with all these these movies. Mm. Uh, but I agree, Charlotte Rampling, a very interesting role. You know, she's almost the dom.
1: Yes,
0: and over this, both this of them. <laughs> over both of them. And this is the thing that will play out later on. Yes, it will. So, historically important if you feel a need to see Georgie Girl. I wouldn't well, recommend I, it. <laughs> No, I'm just putting it out there Uh, But let's move on to the next one
1: yeah, I mean, there were a lot of films like this at the time that people thought were a big deal. Like, even we talked Alfie with Michael Caine last week. And now you're looking like, why was this a big deal? Why was this popular? Why was it, is the song from this such a huge hit? But, yeah. So, anyway, next up, she actually shows up in, we were talking about Diana Rigg before, in The Avengers as Hannah in The Superlative Seven. We spoke to this one in our, well, okay, we will be speaking to this one in our Donald Sutherland show, but suffice to say that beyond the obvious Agatha Christie old dark house slash, 10 little Indian shtick Hang in there next week You'll hear all about it And nice sets and atmosphere The real selling point Of this episode Is Miss Rampling's winning If typically a touch chilly Front and center role Is the Annie Oakley Style deadshot cowgirl mm-hmm. Aside from Diana Rigg And Bardot Look like Patricia Denise In early episode The Removal Man She was by far The most fetching female I've Ever seen on the Long running show And bore much of Rigg's Eyebrow cock Slightly sexual bemusement And demeanor Could she have made A good replacement for Rigg Well perhaps Certainly she'd be Leagues of Freaking Linda Thorson But uh, yeah. obviously she's she did not stick with it. It was a passing thing along the
0: way. Oh yeah, that's one of my very favorite Avengers. Same yeah. and From that time period, from that that season, there's quite a few to stand out. That's mm. one of the best. And yeah, she's quite good in it. And she's also, I don't know, you know, she she carried off this icy, cool but sexy thing going on, which is what her shtick was, yes. of, or probably what she was. So
1: <laughs> yeah, that's what know, I'm thinking. Yeah. <laughs> she done a couple other things around then. There was a TV series called Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. She was in Theater sixty five. She's in something called Target Harry. I don't know anything about any of these. But next up she shows up, that's an important film I should say, is The Damned. It's a historical fiction from a celebrated Italian neorealist director. More or less it's about the Krupp Steel's and Ammunitions firm, here represented by a large family of rich decadents they eat well, they live well, they're quite artsy. They even put on full theatrical shows for themselves, with many members of the family taking part. One plays the cello, one Helmut Berger, no less, in his debut role, does a Marlena Dietrich-style drag show. Unfortunately for them, some internecine struggles for succession and extreme variances in politics come to a head right as Hitler starts his purges, and after one of several assassination attempts and leading up to the Night of the Long Knives, when one of them kills the patriarch and head of the company to speed things along, the entire dynasty begins to fall apart, the most openly anti-fascist of them gets framed and has to flee as an enemy of the state. Berger turns out to be a real pervert, getting it on with a child and even his own mother at one point, yeah. The named successor, who's a member of Rome's SA, gets killed by another family member who's working with the SS in the middle of them having a gay orgy, which is actually one of the main rationales that was given for the massacre of the SA in the Night of Long Knives, those who know your history. Another's wife and kids get sent to Dachau, and the entire situation turns out to be engineered by the Nazis to put the steel mill under state control. Whew! If you thought this one was just going to be some typical Italian neorealist drama or even some sort of ersatz war movie, boy, were you wrong. This is decadent as shit. It's perverse in major swaths of the narrative, with lushly pointed sets and costumery in about four Andy Milligan films worth of interfamilial sniping, backstabbing, and general cattiness, not to mention full-on no-punches, full perversity. This isn't a hard-to-watch manifesto like Pasolini's Solo, but neither is it the icy kinkiness that we'll see with Cavani's Night Porter or the bombastic silliness of Tinto Brass's Salon Kitty, much less the sort of thing we'll you see with the brief boom in Nazi exploitation cinema around 77 or 78 and we spoke to that on our, uh, I think it was the Italian Sleeve show. But something else entirely, it's arthouse kink, it's vibrant, it's colorful, it's cold, it's painterly, it's repulsive yet strangely mesmerical at once and this cast, I mean you got Dirk Bogard, you got a positively stunning Rampling, they're paired several years prior to The Night Porter plus other names like the aforementioned Helmut Berger, Jell-O-Nun-Sploitation regular Florinda Balkan, Salon Kitty's Ingrid Thulin. It's a film that's hard to love but it's also easy on the eyes, and hence it's surprisingly memorable. I'll say I did like this one, but on the same level as I say that I enjoy films like The Beast in Heat or Cannibal Fear Rocks, they fascinate. They're oddly watchable. They're bizarrely cult, but they aren't the, the arc- sort of films you trot out to friends and newcomers and intrinsically <sighs> difficult, quote unquote, due to their rather outre, often uncomfortable subject matter.
0: Yeah, this is one of those films. What's this is 1969. Yeah. And I, this may have been rated X when it first came out because it was just too harsh for m which was equivalent to r at the time and uh it took them i guess from what i see here it took them to 2004 before it was reclassified to an r there's a lot of nudity on a display much of it unerotic but very frank very there but Visconti's a very i, I always felt him the very cold filmmaker yes and, and he's a guy who doesn't know how to edit himself this movie runs 154 minutes which is one thing. That's two and a half hours, much shorter than Endgame, the uh, last Avengers film, <coughs> which you guys will probably see at this point when you hear this. Noticing on that, they could probably pull off that running time. But anyway, the cast is—I don't know—we, you know, icy, icy cold. Dirk bogard oh, Inger Tulin, Helmut Berger. Florinda Bocan, I mean, and with the addition of Charlotte Rampling, who's the subject of our show tonight, we're not talking anyone in this cast being warm, cheerful, bubbly, or... We're talking a perfect cast for a decadent film about uh, Nazism <laughs> in this certain time period covered. Interesting movie, though. It does look stunning. It's well shot. Uh, he used some really good GPs, uh... Cinematography <laughs> people, you know, not, not not like double penetration. I was going to say, uh, that was a
1: great double entendre there.
0: Pasquale <laughs> uh, DeSantis, Armando Danuzzi. Uh, I know DeSantis has, has shot some really good films very interesting movie i cannot add anything else though to what you already said very very good yeah okay
1: so next up she shows up in another one which depending on where and when you saw it maybe she didn't show up at all (laughs) which is vanishing point from 1971 Mm -hmm. Uh, once again even the title's appropriate hands down the best scene in the goddamn film and some dope edits it out. I mean, couldn't you have cut some of the endless bit with the naked motorcycle-riding hippie chick instead? I don't know. It's a weird film. It's clearly trying to pick up the gauntlet dropped by the far superior film and statement about what happened to the hippie dream and what everybody found when they went looking for America, particularly in the Midwest and down South, that was Easy Rider, which we talked about in our Peter Fonda show. But Mm. it's not even as likable or successful as, speaking of the Peter Fonda show, the later Dirty Mary Crazy Larry was on much the same theme. Even so, this odd little film without a beginning or ostensible end centers on a cipher of a lead character, TV and soap actor Barry Newman, who? As he drives a hot Dodge Challenger from Colorado to Frisco on a long day trip. There's apparently a bet out there that he can do the thousands of mile drive inside a single day, while an interstate coalition of pigs use their limited wiles to cut him down. For no apparent narrative reason, he gets the support of a funky DJ named super soul who's actually Cleveland little from blazing saddles who urges him on and warns him of police traps until they raid the station and beat the crap out of him apparently turning his radio show to their advantage that's not really explained either but along the way he also gets the support of a hippie slash hell's angel type and his naked chopper riding mama who offers to screw him and he turns it down he also fends off a carjacking attempt by two flaming queens he gives a lift to. At the end, typical downbeat 70s ending, but man, he's a hero for our time, sticking it to the man, right? Yeah, it's kind of dated and unfocused, and while I do very much appreciate the outlaw pirate against an uptight establishment vibe that's going on, and it does have a certain atmosphere that works, the film's not really saying anything in the end. The restored sequence of rampling just involves a stunning hitchhiker and a rather fetching bare-arm number with a cowl, if you can believe that, it was very witchy, it, who gives him a joint, hands him some crazy lines about waiting for him forever, and fucks them before taking off. But it's unquestionably the high point of an otherwise rather bizarre and unfocusedly aimless early 70s road film slash head film.
0: Yeah, yeah, I I have to pretty much agree with you. The director I find interesting, though, because Richard C., he he always made sure he had that in there, Richard C. period, Serafian, did some strange movies. He was pretty much an actor. Lots of TV, some bit parts and strange things like Sean Penn's The Crossing God, Bullworth. He did. He directed quite a few TV episodes: MacGyver, Wise Guy, Gaudy. You know, name check, name check. But as a director, he did Vanishing Point. He also did the extreme Richard Harris Man in the Wilderness, the bizarre Rod Steiger Lolly Madonna XXX with Anthony Perkins, the Man Who Loved Cat Dancing. Very strange Burt Reynolds film. The Next Man, which is a movie we discussed in our Sean Connery show, before. I guess finding himself maybe... (sighs) Unfinanceable, so he started doing straight-to-VHS stuff. Like Eye of the Tiger, Gary Busey, which actually was not bad. And Street Justice, one of those Lunkhead... The early days of Lunkhead ex-wrestler guys doing uh, action movies on VHS. I forgot who was in that one. It was... uh I can't fucking remember Back in name. those
1: days, it was probably either Hogan, Piper, or uh, who's the guy that became a senator,
0: the Libertarian. Oh, Jesse Ventura. Yes. Who actually, Ture. I I I like where he's at now. His last feature was Solar Crisis, which was a huge. It was a huge bomb because it was like an American-Japanese co-production, big, big money. It was sort of like a solar flare predicts the end of the Earth, and you know they like they threw Tim Matson in, in this. You know, ten years off of. <laughs> Ten Years Not Hot off of Animal House, uh, Charlton Heston, Peter Boyle, Jack Blance, Dorian Herewood, Paul Williams. You know, the, <laughs> Michael Berryman's in this thing, but it was a huge bomb, and they, they took it away from him and recut it. I don't know if it was the Japanese and the Americans both, but it was one of those first Alan Smithy films, you know, where the director just takes his name off the film. Yep, Vanishing Point is a interesting film in that oeuvre where, yo, know, uh, the movies you name-checked before when you were describing it, it's, it's says a lot about that time. Now, the the guy who stars in this thing, I find him kind of vapid, vague. Yeah, he's like a lump. Yes, yeah, true. Although there are a few things he did do that I kind of like the Salzburg connection. I like that quite a lot. So, it's, and Fear is the Key. He, he did two back-to-back kind of for lack of a better word, a Euro spy movie produced by Americans and British, and it was pretty. He was pretty decent in those before.
1: Well, Fear is the key. I think is an Alistair MacLean novel that was filmed, and most of those. I won't say all because I saw some boring ones recently, but most of those do hold up regardless of who's in the yeah, cast.
0: He's so. in that one. He's, he's in that. Yeah, yeah. So and Charlotte is good for the you know the part you described. She kind of burns through it. She's gone. Yes. but it's it's an of its time thing. And if you
1: were here in the US you never even saw that part. It was only it was in the UK and then they put it on recent, you know, re releases of the film. So it's definitely worth checking if you haven't seen it. But it's only about, you know, what, three minutes? It's really not long. That's definitely the most memorable scene in the film. So, after that, she does a couple of quickies. Uh, something called Corky, something called the Ski Bum. Tis a pity she's a horror. Remember the musical? So, then she winds up in asylum in one of the, eh, I don't know if any of those statements were really that memorable in that movie. We talked to this one in our Amicus show. Bottom line, a couple of interesting stars and in a creepy wraparound really can't save this film from its own tedium. Sadly enough, this is one of the better tales in this cheesy Robert Block horror anthology, where Rampling's off her rocker and comes home from the bug house, only to reunite with her chatty imaginary friend Lucy, Britt Eklund of the Wicker Man, the annoying Bond Girl of Man with the Golden Gun, and fame for moaning orgasmically in French all over boyfriend Rod Stewart's Tonight's the Night, who stabs her living nurse at the finale. Surprise, surprise, Lucy doesn't exist, except in the minds of this schizo. Eh, big yawn, at least our two leading ladies are pleasant to look at. That's about all there is to say.
0: Asylum's one of those, uh, by Roy, Roy Ward Baker, one of those uh, anthology films that actually, some of its parts don't make it uh, a great whole. There's a few around this time. The one with madness in the title... Tales uh, of Witnesses. Tales of Witnesses. Yeah, yeah. uh, This is better than that. Vault of Horror, I think Asylum is probably better. They're they're probably both equally weighty. It's at this point where, after Tales from the Crypt and probably one or two others, they start dropping down in quality. It's just really hard to sustain these things. Although... (sighs) She's fun as hell, and, and the Lucy Comes to Stay, that's the episode. James Villiers, everybody will remember from uh, Five Million Years to Earth, is, is in this. I did want to jump in, because you mentioned Tissa Pitti, She's a horror, and it came out and it disappeared. It was on a DVD re-release within the last three years, and I got to see this thing with uh, Fabio Testi, Oliver Tobias, Rick Pataglia, a former, former bodybuilder. Who wasn't like a lot of sort and sandal type things? This she's nude almost in every frame of this film. Really? <laughs> yeah. And and there's quite a lot of, a lot of bush shots in this thing. So for those who are so inclined, I need to look um, up. <laughs> yes, yes. I forgot who put it out. It might have been the perverts at Code Red. <clears throat> you know who they are? Banana guy. <laughs> um, it, it, I. It, it's a dramedy directed by Giuseppe Paccioni Graffoni, um, <laughs> whose CV is like the divine nymph and nothing else beside this film. This movie screams like, where's Franco Nero? Obviously, like uh, Fabio Testi, is almost like a stand-in for him, because it is quite early in, in the whole game at 1969-70. Uh, <laughs> I my I got the DVD and I have to see what the hell I did with it. I watched it once (laughs) and a half and I was like, "Ooh, this is a very strange, perverted little dramedy going on here Uh, in English." uh, I think it was dubbed. This is the kind of thing that I'm very sure. Everybody remembers Continental Film Magazine, Mm -hmm. that British magazine, uh, pretty uh, 60 to 80 pages each issue, but. They cover everything from Ken Russell's The Devils to other films, and when this kind of film came along, they threw a still on the cover, and uh, they, they were like the playboy of Euro-oddball Euro movies. It was like all the all the great uh, stills from nude actresses, you know, were, were in this, and this is one of the one of the ones that was well played out. Not a great film, but again, it's a bit of a heavy drama kind of thing, and but she was quite naked in it. And for those who <laughs> like that kind of thing, yes, uh, we wanted to make that up. Uh, Henry Henry VIII and his six wives, yes. she was also in that. Uh, that came before Asylum, unless you wanted to cover that. No, uh, I <laughs> yeah, it, it's not it was okay. There were a lot of these things at the time. It was done by the BBC but got theatrical release in the U.K. and in the U.S. Pretty much... It was a film version of the Six Wives of Henry VIII, So it's not a re edit of the episodes. This is very unique at the for the time that they did a standalone film version of this very popular nineteen seventy six part BBC miniseries with Keith Michelle. For years everybody's like mispronouncing Keith Mitchell, yeah, fuck you. But thing is, you know, this had everybody in it. Jane Asher, uh, who we mentioned many times different things. Donald Pleasance, on and on and on. Heavy Brit drama. You know, the costume kind. You know, we're talking Henry VIII, folks. You know, she's in this. She has a very important, pivotal pivotal role. And again, if those people who really like their costume things are so inclined to see this, keep in mind that it's not re-edited episodes or cut-down episodes put in a blender this was a feature film they kind of went back and said okay let's do a two-hour version of this five-hour show she's in it but as far as memorability goes uh, as far as her role goes and she kind of vanishes into the background with all these costumes and all the you know the guy's good Keith Michelle he was a very good uh, stage actor primarily and so when you got a guy blasting out the bombast hey yeah, that's pretty clever <laughs> you kind of you just appear into the wallpaper So, next up, next important one anyway, was
1: Zardoz 1974. We'd address this bizarre conflation of 70s gender politics and sci-fi riffing off The Wizard of Oz during our Sean Connery show, but rambling is the standout among the sexist proles that live in the mountain estate vortex, supplied with food by the savages who occupy the earth below, controlled through their worship of the giant flying head of the title. Connery finds and reads the Frank L. Baum original, gets pissed off of being lied to all his life, and sneaks into the head to find this stagnant community, who at first use him as a toy and tool, but eventually causes their doom. Rampling, who already stands out as the only one allowed to walk around in a proper hairdo rather than some tacky headscarf like she's a Jewish or Muslim on a high holy day or something, is a sort of hyperfeminist feminist mad scientist type who's all demolition man about sex, finding intercourse debasing to women, initially wants to kill the hairy diaper-wearing brute. But after he spends some time as a de facto slave to a rather obviously gay fellow, and winds up—he's a slave—and uh, winds up as part of a revolution driven by those outcasts from that new sterile PC society, and prematurely aged, she discovers that, as the dialogue has it, the hunt is always better than the kill. In hunting you, I have become you and it's destroyed what I set out to defend. Bam! they're an item just like that. Everything comes to a rather trippy end. The savages kill the asexual PC types, and as Connery and Rampling have a kid who grows in a montage of accelerated time as they age and die. Yeah, sure. Well, at least you look good. <laughs> so, anything else you want to say about this?
0: Well, this, this is like one of the first films where I, I started getting my thing for skinny chicks. You know? <laughs> uh, Sarah Kestelman is also in this. Oh, is she the one with all the uh, freckles? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The well, number she, two. She, uh-huh. yeah, she's yeah, also hot yeah. to so, drop. She was big TV actress, heavy stuff. You know, uh, she actually did cabaret for British TV. I mean, she's like that kind of person. Tons of theater. Her her filmography is not so heavy, so you could see why Borman cast her. She looks very unique. Little freckles, a little, a little like. Hmm. And then she, and then Rampling being also bitchy and icy. as he's prone to be. And, and, you know, these women are not wearing diaphanous gowns a la a Roland film. They're pretty much wearing knit fabrics with with their very pointy nipples sticking out. I remember this quite (laughs) early... No, this was like a big thing in this very fucking weird Sean Connery movie. I'm sure all the James Bond fans are like, what are we watching? (laughs) And maybe thought they were watching a porno for a minute. Because if you remember, all the... Because it's supposed to be very primitive. So they're knitting. Like, they don't have costumes, per se, you know, too much. And I remember that. Oh, was very strange costuming going on here, you know?
1: If it was a porn, it had to be an ACDC one, because, like I said, he was a slave to
0: that guy for a while, and it's pretty clear oh, what his intentions Alderton. were. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> John Alderton, who, who's, who's still around, bless him. Who did a lot of work. Uh, another, you know... It's funny, too, the kind of movie this is, which is almost impenetrable, uh, brilliant cinematography by Jeffrey Onsworth, by the way. The kind of movie that this is, they surround Sean Connery with a lot of heavy theater people, mm-hmm. which which I found really of note at the time and of and, and today. Because you know, I rewatched it recently for our Connery show, and I was like, Oh, look, all these theater people. We're on to Caravan to The next Next one I had was the Night Porter. So,
1: same year, the Night Porter. A concentration camp official has an S&M fling going on with one of the inmates, which apparently impacts both partners deeply as such boundary-pushing intimate practices are wont to do. Years later, he's managed to escape the whole Nuremberg Trials, and she's married to a boring conductor type. They run into each other when she stays at a Vienna hotel that he's the porter at. Not only do old feelings and desires come to the surface, but there's an additional complication that he's part of a cabal of former Nazis in hiding who see her as an obvious threat to their continued freedom and want to eliminate her. And since the kink is clearly going in both directions this time, he's not about to let that happen. A typically bleak 70s ending and some very controversial background to a practice and lifestyle that already sets prudes on edge have made this someone something of a hot potato. Even after all these years. Some celebrate it as an house classic, others consider it detestable trash. Some for its dicey ties to the darkest time in modern history, but others simply like it because it's kinky as shit. While he was a lucky pick due to his work alongside Rampling in Visconti's The Dam five years earlier, Dirk Bogart is a weird choice for the lead as well, having been the star of the lighthearted British doctor comedies of Betty Box. I mean, we spoke to Doctor at Sea in our Bordeaux show, and quite gay. Although, obviously, at the time, this was kind of kept hush hush, as with witchcraft, it actually remained a criminal offense in England all the way through to the Summer of Love, who was only amended as late as. 1967 that it was legal. This is further touched on quite openly in the film, as his character seems to have a definite relationship going on with a ballet-dancing fellow SS officer, but this angle's dropped once Rampling reappears. And it's admittedly an odd beast of a film. A few isolated scenes aside, it's not sexy enough to really titillate, it's too cringe-inducing in the whole Holocaust thing, and yet too sleazy and exploitative to really serve as art house, unless you extend that term to cover things like Matres as Criterion has. I mean, hey, I appreciate them for doing so, but it's certainly arguable. The bottom line, taken on the whole, the they. Put is just too arty to be sufficiently sexy but too sleazy and loaded to appeal to the usual art house crowd it's a loaded gun but one with definite appeal beneath its quirky icy veneer and even so Rampling is stunning here there's a lot of rather loaded imagery like the whole bit where she's crawling around the apartment like a cat yeah i like that yeah. <laughs> or when she jumps the guy and takes top she's practically animalistic at points and it's this film more than anything else that she's done that really cemented her reputation as a sex symbol of the decade for better or worse
0: Oh, this is another thing. If everybody uh, recalls, uh, I mentioned Continental Film Review Magazine and also Playboy at the time period. This was a big thing. Mm-hmm. Prior to the film's release, you know, it was getting art house showings. You know, I guess Cannes and, and Venice and people just like going ape shit, Like, how weird is this movie and how shattering it is. It had been for them to watch. You know, uh, it's, it's still... For you know, 19, 1971, 72, it's still 74. It's still too close to. It's only 30 years after the end of the war, and so this is a really nasty thing. You know, uh, but it's one of the few mainstream films, for lack of a better word, that actually deals with bondage and submission and and the like. Mm-hmm. Um, oddly enough, I enjoyed dirk bogard's roles and i never gave heavy thought into his sexuality until much later when i actually learned a lot about the actor uh the man so uh, there's a lot of twisted things you know it, it, it's similar in a way to the film we discussed not to uh, you know about 20 minutes ago with, with these themes but it's much nastier and mm. yeah it's it, yeah who does it appeal to? It's too harsh for the art the art house crowd, and too outre for the grindhouse crowd. Mm-hmm. You know. Uh, and then again, there is a particular group out there that likes their stuff hard. Mm-hmm. You know. So uh, this is this was definitely a cringe a cringe film, and in a way, it's also a movie that probably. I'd probably fuck with her career probably for the rest of it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> she she did not work as steady, but we don't know what's going on with her real life. We can o- it can only be supposition you know maybe this was the thing that appealed to her possibly. Yeah,
1: given the pointed concentration on sex as subject matter during this particular year, it should also be mentioned that around this time, she was supposedly in a menage a trois living arrangement with her then-husband and a male model, which became something of a cause celebre among the scandal sheets. And we'll touch on that again a little bit later, but so yeah, I mean, there's, there's stuff going on here. So, next up is the one that you wanted to go to next, which is Caravan to cars also still the same year. One of the 80s most annoying starlets, Meredith Baxter Burney's equally obnoxious nebish of a husband, David Burney. is. <laughs> the <laughs> unlikely star of this typically convoluted Alistair Maclean spy story. Maclean is all over the place, with films like *Puppet on a Chain or even *The Satan Bug being amazing cross between the bombast and location fetishization of the Bond film, the more realistic and dirty feel of the Harry Palmer film, and the unexpected right turns of the Hitchcock film and others like Where's the Eagle's Dare being ripping Mission Impossible-style infiltration-based war films, while others like Eight Bells Toll or River of Death can fall kind of flat, which is surprising. Mm-hmm. This one's in the middle. It doesn't work quite so well as the the best McLean adaptations, but it's hardly as awful as the bad ones, despite Bernie's rather quirky and uncomfortable leading role. I guess it's akin to when they did spy films and cast the likes of Tony Randall or Tony Perkins. You know, is this film still going to work despite them? In this case, it does, though I'd choke a fair portion of that success down to the presence of a simply vibrant Charlotte Rampling and her most Mm -hmm. free-spirited and hippie chick-esque. I almost compare her wandering photographer role here to Laura Gemser's Emmanuel, but it's not quite there. Even so, you get the general connection. One of the great lines of dialogue in there. You're not a French sex maniac? No, I'm an American sex maniac. Once again, <laughs> she's a pretty hitchhiker. Just led off by one driver only for smarmy shit Bernie to pull over and pick her up exactly where she left off. She's a freelance photographer in Spain to cover a gypsy music festival. I'm a photographer, she says. She's taking a break from pornographic films, he adds when they interrupt a the hitman mid-execution for a photo-op of Hungarian gypsies changing a flat, and wind up chasing away at gunpoint over his snatching her camera. Just don't ask, seriously. They wind up in the middle of an ever-spiraling web of nonsense involving blackmail and effective defection of a scientist to America, several murders, bullfights, helicopter chases, quicksand, and the aforementioned hitman. It's eye candy and fluff by Eurospy standards, and Bernie's just a sleazy little prick, but it's very visual, not least for the eternally bemused ramp on slight entertainment, but definitely worth a view, no question
0: it's much better than you think it would be i will put it that way. um it's again you're 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 really on fire today you you name check some of the better alistair mclean uh film adaptations and and y'all you just know, falls into the lesser category but that being said and with bernie also in the lead she's really good charlotte rampling in this film and it's definitely if you watch it again it's actually better than you thought it would be yes yeah, it's 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 it holds up much better. It holds up much better than you would think. Is that Bondian thing? It's definitely an international film. There's a lot of French people in Marcel Boussoufi from The French Connection. You know the guy who's mm-hmm. on the staircase uh, in the train station. Michelle Lonsdale, who they try to make it think for some reason in the late '70s. I don't know why. He's like a brick Mm -hmm. But Other than that uh, Francois Brion was in this I I always had a soft spot for her But Charlotte Kind of Nearly steals his film I I really I have to say I enjoyed it It's not a great movie But it's, it's, it's a hell of a lot of
1: fun Yeah so, next up, Farewell My Lovely, she winds up in. Mm. Maybe it was Polanski in Chinatown. I don't know. In the mid 70s, there was a brief revival of 40s and 50s noir film, newly rechristened as, quote, neo noir. Elliot Gould in The Long Goodbye, Donald Sutherland in Clute, help Burt Reynolds in The Long Unavailable and Stupidly Price Scouts Hustle. Someone get on a stick already. The guy just died. Time to cash in on everything. So, I've seen folks describe a number of exploitation, cop and revenge films I love as neo noir stuff like Busting, Shaft, Sheba Baby, The Mechanic, Charlie Varrick, Get Carter, The French connection. Taking a palm 123 and weirdest of all, terrorist thriller Black Sunday, Dario Genter's Birth with the Crystal Plumage, and the effect of recent headlines biopic Serpica. They even have Vanishing Point, Joe Don Baker's Walking Tall, and Sean Connery's heist slash Watergate Paranoia film The Anderson Tapes, listed as being a neo-noir in one place, so it's clear that the definition is pretty damn muddy. But it's pretty clear what you're talking about when the surprise revival of Robert Mitchum's career is mentioned. And in fact, at least two of his mid-70s efforts were clearly of this genre. The Yakuza and the Raymond Chandler adaptation in which we're talking about, Farewell, My Lovely. Why don't you come over here and sit beside me? You know, I've been thinking about that ever since you first uncrossed your legs. Those damn things are always up around your neck. <laughs> says, yeah. Uh, Mitchum is Chandler's Philip Marlowe, a tough, down-in-his-luck shoe who's played by Bogart and Elliot Gould in other films. We mentioned this one briefly in our Stallone shows. He's one of the thug extras here. Doesn't get a line, but does get into bed with a flirtatious young hooker who's the girlfriend of the big butch madam, so you do notice him. This big lug of a gangster, who looks like Richard Keel but isn't, hires Mitchum to find his ex-girlfriend, who seems to have vanished while he was down. In the course of his investigation, he winds up having a thing with the oversexed Black Widow type, Charlotte Rampling, who's married to some old guy for money but clearly has other ambitions. In the end, it turns out that she's more tied to the whole affair than you realize, and several double-crosses close out the film. Wow, does Charlotte Rampling define noir femme fatale or what smoking hot performance she's clearly drawing on her inner Lauren Bacall or something dead on casting all around this film and it should have given Mitchum more of a career boost than it did sadly he'd only do one more of these a remake of the black sleep in 1978 which is terrible but good good stuff highly recommended interestingly Mitchum corroborates that whole menage a trois thing we're talking about earlier he was quoted at the time as saying that Rampling arrived with an odd entourage two husbands or something or they were friends and she married one of them and he grew a mustache and butched up
0: (laughs) this did happen this is real life Oh, it's, it's, yeah, this revived his career, Robert Mitchum, and I don't, I think the, the, <laughs> the, the sort of sleep reboot, which actually puts him in contemporary time, the big yes. sleep, the one you just mentioned, is not as horrible as some say, hey, it's pretty dicey. It's pretty dicey, but this is really a good one. This is fun. And dialogue is good. you got so many people. you got Joe Spinell, Harry Dean Stanton, yes, that Harry Dean Stanton is a cop. Uh, Anthony Zerbe, Sylvia Miles, mm-hmm. you know, which the less said the best, uh, <laughs> but uh, she's certainly a presence. John Ireland, yes. y'all you know, Talk about guys in the 40s and 50s, y'all, you know, getting a career revival. Mitchell was like He woke up, you know, like sleepy-eyed. He really knocked it out of the ballpark here. Mm -hmm. And Charlotte Rampling, the subject of tonight's show, is just our femme fatale. She got her face on the posters. It was a big boost for her.
1: Yeah so next up after a couple of minor things she winds up in what's really a tv movie sherlock holmes in new york in 1976 roger Moore is a particularly snobbish holmes john houston is a crusty old down market moriarty and john steed himself patrick mcnee proves he's a single role actor with the most embarrassing horse voice attempt at watson you're ever likely to see <laughs> moore does the world's worst and most obvious disguises putting on silly accents and just coming off like a complete asshole throughout and this from james bond the classic half of The Persuaders and The Saint. Rampling is an opera singer and clever thief Irene Adler and seems to be taking her cues from the rest of the cast by hamming it up shamelessly, at least in the first half. This is Rampling like you've never seen her before or since and it's a safe bet you never would want to see her again like this, chewing scenery and over emoting like a high school theater ingenue. Again, she gets a little better in the second half, but oof. It's not the worst homes out there. There are so many worse ones, believe it or not, but it's kind of down
0: there. So, what's your take? I, I thought it was... I, I thought it was... When it was new, I thought it was fun. It was charming. When Jeremy Brett followed up with a bunch of downbeat things, mm-hmm. like the whole. I'm a big fan of Sherlock Holmes. I love Basil Rathbone, Basil Rathbone, and, and love Doctor Strange. <laughs> I, I love, what's his name? Hiddleston. Uh, no, I'm not that mm-hmm. guy.
1: No, the other fellow, uh, what's his name there? Um, it is Dr. Strange, What's
0: his name. <laughs> it is Dr. Strange. I love Dr. Strange's interpretation of Sherlock Holmes. I, I really do. Benedict Cumberbatch, that's it. Yes, thank you very much. I'm sorry, Benedict. I'm sorry to his fans. <laughs> no, seriously. I, uh, I, should, I, I should like Arthur Watner, come on. <laughs> no, no, I, I, I really enjoy his interpretation. I, I thought Roger Moore was an odd choice to Patrick Mcnee was an odd choice and yes in a way they both disappointed mm. and she certainly did but it winds up by default being better than other things <laughs> so there that
1: yeah the Brett ones at the time were like oh these aren't bad but they're depressing I do not have copies of my collections that just say a lot and I love Holmes Mm -hmm. so anyway especially watching him die because the later ones he was actually very sick and you could see it I'm like wow okay well Mm -hmm. yeah he was brave I guess to keep working but jeez Anyway, so after uh, this lovely <laughs> piece of shit, he goes on to another real winner, which I remembered more fondly as a child than it actually turned out to be in adulthood. Orca, 1977. Treated with kindness, there is no greater friend to man, but if not, they have a profound instinct for vengeance. For whatever reason, I had the magazine ad slash one sheet for this one hanging on my bedroom wall for years as a kid. I guess Dino De Laurentiis appealed to young minds, because I'd also had one for that stupid Jessica Lange King Kong, which you say it all. Richard Harris, an <laughs> Irish marine poacher, whose small crew includes no less than Keenan Wynn, Hell Satan, Doctor Strains himself, Peter Hooten, and Bo Derek, just before she became a thing with Ten, is so drunk and stupid, he can't tell a great white shark, which is what he's initially hunting, from a killer whale. He, he essentially runs her afoul of marine biologists rampling when he almost kills her in his south attempt to harpoon his mistaken identity victim, only to wind up attending her lectures and quizzing her on whale facts for her troubles. But even though she tries to set him straight... The stupid lust doesn't learn his lesson winds up spearing a pregnant female orca who then miscarries and dies crying these horrific wails like a cat in pain while his mate and a school of them hurl the corpse off the shore like a human funeral. From here, you can imagine where this is going, particularly after everyone from ramping to our American Indian pal hammer home just how smart this species of whale is and relate stories of their retribution on those who harm them even decades after the fact. While there's a weird mixed-message attempt to make hard-drinking poacher Harris some sort of sensitive soul, tortured by the killing of the whale, and in the process, win as well, you can't really feel sorry for him and his stupid-ass crew. They're doing something disreputable in the first place. They mm-hmm. make dumb mistakes one after the other. They harm perfectly innocent animals. And then we're supposed to give a shit when they get to come off? It's fuck no. I'm with the goddamn whale get that drunken fuck rip the leg off let the sea run red with the blood of your enemies <laughs> rambling keeps hanging around more or less to taunt harris with his impending doom pointing out who the real villain in the picture is as he gets more and more codependent with her for whatever reason going full-on captain ahab the new man way i mean seriously i can half see her in the indian wanting to bust his hump but why the fuck does he keep going to her her, dropping by having late night chats with the woman it's not like they have any sort of relationship or whatever maybe he just wants to torture himself is he trying to explain himself and justify his actions who the hell knows and then she actually gets on a boat with him claiming she feels bad about rubbing it in and scaring the guy into a increasingly flippy state of mind uh yeah sure in the end it actually turns into Frankenstein where he follows his vengeful widower of a whale up into the damn Arctic to his death wow it's a bad movie to the point where Jaws 4 starts to look like competent filmmaking with the only reason <laughs> to watch this being stunt casting Richard Harris in the lead hooting Derek and Wynn as his crew and of course a chillier than usual oddly asexual rampling as the observer tormentor but it's a flop for a reason
0: well the odd thing is, I, I was surprised that Ann Turkle wasn't in this, because <laughs> Ann Turkle was Richard Harris's uh, wife at the time. She was in a lot of his movies, mm-hmm. and, and maybe he wanted Ann Turkle to be in this, and they said, probably said no. You know, Charlotte Rampling, hot off of maybe Farewell, My Lovely, is much more box office. And thing is, this did not do well no. for Laurentiis production. I, it's budget is rumored to be anywhere from, like, 5 to, like, 20, and only made 15 worldwide and less than 10 in North America. First of all, this is at the time period, post-Jaws, folks, post-Jaws, this is at the time period where ecology and awareness for sea life, sea creatures, is starting to get out there and be present in the mind of people. Mm-hmm. So, it's a bad idea to make a movie like this. Mm-hmm. It's like, let's make a whaling film with Sylvester Stallone and all those. You know, that would just blow your mind and be bad box office. Get all your great stars. Let's whale and kill these creatures. Yeah, I, I just something I'm throwing out there as as, as in a positive, positive comparison to this. It's like, it was a bad idea. Why would you do this? And the screaming whale, is going to haunt your nightmares. I mean... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's just like, you know, I'm surprised people didn't walk off this picture, which is probably like, Richard Harris. Heavily drinking. He looks like he is in this movie, too. Yeah. So Charlotte, she's hanging around. Um, there's that. <laughs> Max. Alright, uh, so,
1: next up, she... Has basically has a
0: four-year break and with
1: good reason i guess so next up at least the next thing that matters she shows up with woody allen and probably what's his last watchable movie with stardust memories in 1980 mm. you know people think i'm egotistical and narcissistic it's not true as a matter of fact if i did identify with the greek mythological character it would not be narcissus who would it be zeus You know, I don't give a shit about all this hullabaloo with his personal life. Mia Farrow's crazy, she always was, even Sinatra saw that, that's why he dumped her so fast. But I like Woody Allen, I'm sorry, I always did. And after I introduced some of his stuff, I'm talking about his early stuff, to my wife, she liked those films too. Now, admittedly, we're talking from his stand-up days through a Midsummer Night's Sex comedy here, when he was actually trying to be funny as well as intellectual and cultured. The film falls right on the cusp of a major change in the Allen filmography and approach when he still had enough of the Annie Hall thing going to please an audience, but hadn't quite gone full on Ingmar Bergman, which would really kind of kick off with Zelig, which I think was his next film. This one falls in this brief transitional phase where he'd already dived in headfirst with the pretentious drama interiors, but followed up with a few films that more or less returned to the love and death Annie Hall mold simultaneously bore major elements of where he wanted to go from here on out. Filmed in black and white, an introduction of more serious tone, his thing about old jazz coming more to the fore, etc. You know, for a guy who makes a lot of funny movies, you're kind of a depressive... In this case, he's a filmmaker who, wait for it, makes successful comedies that everyone loves, but seems more haunted by life's darkness, the illnesses and deaths of those he knows, and his decision over which of his current of the rather vapid and depressive chain smoker Jessica Harper of Suspiria, and the likably attractive, and still as strange, Marie-Christine Boreau of Cousin Cousine fan, he should stick with. Mm-hmm. I don't know about anyone else, but there's no debate whatsoever. Harser's a piece of work here, to say the least. I wouldn't touch her miserable ass with a 15-foot pole. Plus, Boreau's French. You ever see Cousin Cuisine? Yeah complicating the whole thing is his reminiscence with the love of his life. (laughs) I did. I love that movie. We'll talk about that in a minute. Anyway, complicating the whole thing is a reminiscence of the love of his life, who he seems to have a hell of a lot of fights with. You'd think he was married to her, who's quite appropriately a dream girl figure with the sort of look guys crash cars over, our heroine of the evening. Interestingly, for the ostensible overriding focus and central figure of our lead's obsessions, Rambling isn't on-screen all that much, though you will certainly notice when she is, leaving the film more about Woody grousing about his real-life issues of being a depressive New York Jewish man who's also a natural comedian i mean every time he speaks at a screening no matter however grim the topic or serious the tone he winds up cracking some real zingers that lighten the mood and how his audience only wants to see his older comedies not the more serious tone dramatic stuff he's starting to gravitate towards an increasing doses narcissistic no oh, not woody i like this film i like pretty much everything he did from what's up tiger lawyer through midsummer night sex comedy and even a highly neurotic charlotte rampling is desirable here so
0: that's enough said for me uh <laughs> <laughs> I always mean, found interesting that yeah, Woody Allen never cast hot Asians in this movie because he ended up banging his stepdaughter and <laughs> married her. Uh, she was Korean. So uh, maybe
1: if he kept doing it to the eighties, we didn't go in that Bergman shtick. Maybe he would have.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. just there's a lot of what what's the thing I I, I name check for, like hot thin. He, there's definitely like he had definitely has this thing for hot thin girls. at yes. this point. Yeah, we, this movie's full of them. You got Charlotte Rampling, Jessica Harper. Uh, Amy Wright, uh, Sharon. Yeah, I mean, you know, Sharon Stone, notwithstanding, she's she's not even a cameo; she was an extra at this film. Yeah. But uh, 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 Lorraine Newman, you know, Louise Lasser—they were all this kind of image, this this thing. And it's an interesting movie. Tony Roberts is very good at this. I mean, it's not bad. I mean, I I would never want to do Woody Allen show, but I would say this is one of his better films. And and. Charlotte Rampling certainly interesting in this, as well as a Woody Allen esque French film that followed this up. Not the Purple Cairo thing, but the Purple Taxi by Yves Boisset. And I did see this. It's about a bunch of rich people living in exile in Ireland, and it has the strangest cast: Peter Ustinov, Philippe Noiret, Edward Albert, and Fred Astaire of all people. I saw this on a DVD burn that somebody gave me once, and I said, oh, this is a very strange movie. <laughs> but she comes back with a bang, yeah.
1: super bang. Well, let me just say, though, speaking of Marie-Christine Bureau and Cousin cuisine one of these days I would love to do a show on just, you know, Cherry picking some favorite art house of the sixties uh, and seventies. It's mostly the seventies we're talking about because th- we bring some of these directors up. Sometimes they play into the various you know character actors we're talking about the, the filmographies. But there are films like that that there's really no other way that we would get to discuss that. You know, we're always favorites of mine. And for some strange reason, that thing hasn't been available over here since the days of VHS.
0: Well, it's like cries and whispers, uh, the Bergman film that that had burned itself into my retina. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, there's, oh. there's a lot like that. I mean, even if you want to try to get Irma Vep, you know, these, these things disappear. Mm-hmm. Buñuel films disappear. Why? I don't know. Criterion does a nice job of bringing these things over, but otherwise, they kind of fall into limbo somewhere. And you know, maybe you can get a copy from the UK. Maybe you can get a you know some Korean knockoff that's got an English soundtrack or got the English subtitles. But you know, to get the real deal, like you used to see on PBS back in the day. Pfft, Good luck. So, anyway, throughout the 80s, I don't really see too much until we hit Angel Heart. So, what were you thinking in terms of
0: coming back in a big way? Was that it? No, I was thinking of The Verdict. Yeah, Sydney Lumet, who's been name-checked a lot lately. We should be considering a Sydney show, maybe. <laughs> uh, hard-hitting director, really interesting guy in terms of what his subject matter. I mean, sorry, not interesting guy in terms of I haven't researched him enough to say that about his personal life. This was a brutal film, brutal in terms of dialogue, really hard hitting. David Mamet or Mamet, you you choose. Uh, Did the (laughs) screenplay uh, before became a lunkhead director. But this is about a lawyer who basically, what do you call these guys, ambulance chaser? Yeah, and and he seeks redemption. He finds redemption in a really difficult case. Great cast, James Mason Milo O'Shea, really good Irish Character actor, and Charlotte Rampling, of all people Who was his foil In this film, I mean like If, if you're going to think of like one of the Six great Paul Newman performances, this is certainly One of them, she burns in this As a misanthropic Femme fatale Post-femme fatale period <laughs> This is evil and, and uh, very, very interesting how this movie kind of created a whole new career for Paul Newman, who up until then was always thought of the pretty boy, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then suddenly the guy can act. We always knew he could, but I think people forgot. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I really like this film. Not my kind, you know, I will put it out there, not my kind of movie for enjoy- enjoyment, but I respect it as good as it is. And she's quite interesting in it. Angel Heart you mentioned.
1: Yeah, so we're jumping up several years now, but 1987 choosing the Angel Heart is a cheesy big-budget occult effort from one of our cheesiest decades. A young but still scrubby Mickey Rourke, talking just like Bruce Willis without a smidgen of the charm, tries his best to pull off the 40s noir gumshoe shtick, and there's a goofy twist that involves Robert De Niro in a stupid-looking goatee playing one of the worst cinematic satans ever has saved. But as an Oh, acquaint- you
0: just gave it away. See, <laughs> you gave it away.
1: But uh... as an acquaintance loved to share, he really got into the method, and everyone on set was scared of him because he was Satan. Yeah, okay. (laughs) He was so bad, you wouldn't believe it. Hiring the detective to catch a saucer who welts on a deal. Future Mrs. Lenny Kravitz, Lisa Bonet, broke away from her sort of wholesome Cosby show image with this film and some Playboy or Penthouse photo shoots around the same time, with a long boring sex scene, only saved by the fact that she doesn't shave her pits. Rambling is still looking pretty damn good here, and she acts the pants off the rest of the cast in an all-too-brief, understated cameo performance as the rich video of said sorcerer who also reads horoscopes, loves long teeth, and wears a funky, stylized pentagram necklace. Personally, I prefer if they include a sex scene with her over brone but there you have it. Highly overrated, if it may really fair, but surprisingly low standards of 80s occult horror. P.S. Mickey Rourke
0: sucks. What's your take? <laughs> well, there's a big gotcha in this movie, which uh, I'm not going to give away. There you uh, which... go. <laughs> you passed it. <laughs> oh, sort of. I mean, there's still a mystery there, but yeah, go ahead. No, no, there's a big gotcha in this. and and I don't know if it was sustainable enough to to make the film any better than it was this seems to me to be a victim of tampering by the studio i mean I just i just feel it this you know you mentioned elisa bonet uh long sexy with mickey rock supposedly it was real and so well it turned real i don't know i don't care <laughs> that's not what i'm about uh, at the moment it wasn't exactly exciting. <laughs> it says it a lot. <laughs> it wasn't particularly exciting. But, you know, I guess if they were faking it and then they did it, fine. Okay,
1: okay. I would rather see Rampling jumping. Oh, what's his face? Dirk Brogard's uninterested bones in Night Porter. Because that right. was hot, even though the film was icy. Than this, which was
0: just kind of like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> it's, a very, it's a very strange movie. Uh, but I don't think altogether... I, I would not not recommend it. So if you've yeah. never seen it, I, I have to say you should see it just for what it is. It's it's certainly something of its time that uh, should be viewed. And if you're into occult cinema and this cult thing, and Niro is certainly interesting. I don't know what he's doing with this, but it could it could also go down to direction. He's really good when he has good direction. I think it's one of those cultural touch points that really
1: doesn't deserve its reputation, kind of like Usual Suspects, or Soza, and what the hell's the other one? Crying Game. Uh, like, uh, right. Yeah. One. Like, yeah, okay. really? Yeah, but everybody thinks, oh, oh, that's the first time we saw that. Oh, what a big shock. Mm, yeah, Who cares? I agree. I agree.
0: Yeah. yeah.
1: Anyway, so next up, she does a much better film, which is still kind of cheesy in the 80s, DOA, 1988. It's a weird reworking of the film noir classic. Instead of Edmund O'Brien and 50s sci-fi queen Beverly Garland, who's in films like Not of the Earth, It Conquered the World, and Alligator People, you get the Big Easy's Joker faced Dennis Quaid as a creative writing professor, and horny student Meg Ryan trying to uncover who poisoned his drink and why. While the basic plot runs along the same lines, and it certainly qualifies as a sort of 80s neo-noir, the particulars are completely different. There's no salesman, no radium, no luminous poisoning. Instead, it's a bunch of college students, the hip prof, and the school's rich benefactors tied up in a convoluted scheme of bastard family relations, and get this, intellectual copyright. Seriously, times, must be really different if it's worth killing off a bunch of people over an unpublished book manuscript with the intention of passing it off as your own. Nowadays, everybody writes for fucking free, and nobody cares. My mouth dropped when the baddie said how much he thought he was getting for a deal on that book. Hey, how about sending us some money? Uh, <laughs> all the writing that I do, Jesus. Ramping, there's an important but ultimately bit part here, as said benefactors whose bastard son was the main murder victim, and there's a lot of confusion and red herrings related to her possible involvement in the poisoning of Quaid, and at least the murders of both the student and her late husband. Sadly, one year on from Angel Heart, and she's starting to look kind of matronly and drawn. I mean, who knows? Maybe it was unflattering lighting or something, but all of a sudden she's starting to look old. Surprisingly, it's actually a pretty decent film, like I said, for all the changes, and it bears much of the sultry nighttime feel of similar favorites Sarah, like The Big Easy or Sea of Love, mm-hmm. albeit without that pointedly erotic charge both of those films are known for.
0: Oh, no, it's really good. It's actually, folks, believe it or not, Dennis Quaid is really good in this, as is most of the supporting cast. So what's up with the movie? It being a little quirky, it's because the directors, two of them, Annabelle Janko and Rocky Morton, were behind Max Headroom. And Max Headroom was this, I don't know. <laughs> of its time. Back,
1: and of its time. A riff on William Gibson, I think.
0: Yeah, uh, of its time, television show, uh, if for my co-host and I to describe it would take... A long time <laughs> You either like it or you didn't And uh, it was a thing Blade Runner-esque Blade Runner-esque, very unique no, Blade Runner-esque makes it sound good
1: Oh <laughs> <laughs> um, well, man, the Pays is in it from The Flash so. um, <laughs> Your
0: mustache Anyway So these guys were I think maybe the co-creators Or they certainly directed the majority of the episode So they got some gigs directing films. This was one of the better ones. Uh, certainly, Dennis Quaid's really good. Whole cast is good. I have to agree. Yeah, Charlotte Rampling's starting to look a little something here. It's downbeat in a way. It it doesn't... You know, you could have fixed this DOA to end in the... You see, the 80s... See, keep something in mind, folks. Uh, I'm trying to think as I'm speaking here. The 80s was still that period where... Things that were down deep got worse, and you walked out of the theater crawling virtually in some films. Yeah. This is one of those movies that did not end well. And um, I think that's why it has uh, such a, a subdued reputation. But then it's quite really good. The movie's better than you would, you would think. Yeah, um, much better than you think. Yeah, uh, and Charlotte is interestingly positioned to play the role that she does, although she has minimal screen time. So, after
1: this, Charlotte floundered around a bit before something major impacted her life and career. Around the time of Orca, she had remarried after dumping the guy she was having that three-way with that we talked about earlier. This time, the minimalist French Oxygen composer Jean-Michel Jarre. She actually remained with him for a good 20 years until around 97, when she dumped him for having too many affairs, and probably wound up having a nervous breakdown. Now, while she continued doing some movies and television, mainly in France from the look of it, she did pull a vie privée à la Bordeaux, more or less going into hiding for a decade or more there around the 90s. And other than seeing that she took a role in Basic Instinct 2, which I forgot even existed, there's really nothing further that I personally have to say or that I felt the need to explore in the remainder of her career. But, you know, I know you're more Netflix-fluent and all current with these folks' late-life careers, so do you have any gems that you want to discuss uh, from uh, that
0: period? Well, <laughs> I mean, as far as gems go, uh, she... She did appear in a smaller role, uh, strangely a smaller role. I mean, she spilled like fifteenth or twentieth yeah. in *Spy Game*. Tony Scott's actually way above average. Robert Redford, Brad Pitt, throwback to Euro spy film, and uh, but she really didn't have that much a of a. Uh, uh, what's my uh, presence to really make a note. Uh, she was in a very strange Mike Hodges picture. Flash! Ah! <laughs> um, I'll sleep when I'm dead. Starring Clive Owen, who at the time was posi- positioned to be a possible Bond replacement. 2003 film. Clive Owen seeking, uh, you know, he's a, a gangster seeking uh, revenge for the death of his brother, I believe. Uh, you know, that kind of thing. That Get carter kind of is this going on there Jonathan Rhys-Myers In between Shooting Up Was in this movie <laughs> Malcolm McDowell I mean There's just It's a heavy A movie filled With heavy hitters And And Charlotte's Second build I remember her In this film It's also very downbeat It's very dirty Homosexuality And British gangs Is like a thing That leaves a weird taste in them out And um, I don't know I, I really wanted To see this film And then after I saw it I was like Oh Can I unsee this uh, Clive Owen is good. He's, he's good at a lot of things. Yeah, you said she's in Basic Instinct Two, which I forgot existed Same as here. well. Un- until doing preparation for the show. Michael Caton Jones, who has done big movies. Uh what are you talking about, Lewis? Well, Memphis Bell, Rob Roy, is that the movie where Liam Neeson's swinging his big dick? You know, like <laughs> Yeah, that's the one. That's the one where he went like full full Monty, um, and then he did Basic Instinct too, and he pretty much never worked again. So, because everybody's big Basic Instinct moment is when Sharon bless <laughs> your Sharon Stone crossed her legs or uncrossed them, so the big poster of selling point was like, okay, we're gonna show my Harry Bush again. It's just not that good. Years before he would become uber famous on these shows, David Morrissey, the British character actor from British British Television, is like a featured guy in this film, but nobody knew who he was at the time, so audiences couldn't make the connection. You know, Walking Dead and a bunch of other uh, TV shows, uh, he's very good. He's a very good actor. But at this point in time, nobody knew who he was, so you throw him in a big film, and actually, how do you do a basic instinct sequel without Michael Douglas? Yeah, you know, it's 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 it was a mess. She was in it, almost as strange as the Matthew Casabas French look Besson wannabe starring Ben Diesel, Babylon A.D. <laughs> now Charlotte Rampling is, is in the cast of this thing, which uh, Michelle Yeoh. Yes, we're name-checking her again, lovely Michelle Yeoh is in this. Uh, <laughs> It is a look-based-on wannabe. Uh, essentially, Ben Dizu, who, at the time of the Fast and Furious uh, reboot uh, of his franchise, this is 2008, has, you know, he's swinging his balls with power now. He's breaking buildings down. <laughs> so he can get anything he wants made. And in this case, it was like a very Luke Besson-like sci-fi film. Uh, sort of along the lines of The Fifth Element. But something a little more deeper And I'm sorry I think Bruce Willis Could have probably pulled this off better than Vin Diesel Vin, I like Vin for certain things For this, where you have to have somebody Showing some kind of deep thought It's not going to work <laughs> and, 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 and sorry Vin Yo, yo uh, Michelle, yo uh, Lambert Wilson Mark Strong, the go-to guy For the last 30 years of villainy is in this. It looks beautiful. Kasavitz has made some personal favorite films of mine. Crimson Rivers with uh, Jean Reno. There's another choice for a possible show. I love that guy. (laughs) Gothica, the very strange, beleaguered uh, film with uh, Halle (laughs) (laughs) Berry, which is actually better than you think it might be. He did this uh, Babylon AD in 2008 before he sort of didn't work too much, because it was a huge, made a bomb. Charlotte's in here, it's it's like a sci-fi movie. You know, we have in the far future Russian mobs, and empaths, and and, and, and I don't know, a fat Gerard Depardieu, but that's kind of like a, a thing, right? When is he not fat? Uh, so, um... Hey, His first film. Well, well uh, yes, I'm sorry, sir. Uh <laughs> kind of let yourself go when you don't care. (laughs) Charlotte. Now, Charlotte Rampley was in Red Sparrow. I think you might have missed it, or you just stopped. Uh, The Frances Lawrence, uh, Jennifer Lawrence film, which I liked, Atomic Blonde, with uh, Charlize Theron. It was a good throwback to Euro Spy. It was brutal, nasty, great choreography by the John Wick guys, and she was Trisexual, the sex was amazing. She was hot, right? This is only two years ago. So, they try to do the same thing with Jennifer Lawrence and making her a Russian ballerina who's <laughs> hired by the CIA. Yeah, you see where this is going, hired by the CIA, but she's getting gang raped, and it's right, we got a nasty flavor. The sex is not as hot as it was. It's and, Jennifer and, and,
1: Lawrence. We're looking pain in the
0: ass. Well, <laughs> no, no, but still. No, but a week, you know, it'll work. But it just, it just became a nasty, brutal, misogynist film. And it just really bottomed out. Charlotte Rampling's in this as the older. I, I watched it. I was kind of sorry I did. She's <laughs> the headmistress of the Sparrow School that teaches ballerinas to be spies. Got a weird cast. Joel Egerton is a CIA guy. Mary Louise Parker. There's a name from the past. Otherwise, it's like Euro familiar Euro faces. Hugh Quarshie from uh, uh, the churches in this thing. Mm-hmm. But I mean, you know, it's it's an nasty little fucking movie. But I guess we're gonna end this on the note that Charlotte Rampling is in the Dune remake. Yes, by Dennis Villeneuve. Just wanted to mention also that there was
1: that little uh, scandal do whatever where she was almost uh, given something some kind of Oscar thing I don't know she's involved with that for what was that forty five weeks or some crap like that it's one of those things like Estelle got their groove back where uh, she's like an older woman and they go down to Jamaica and get screwed by a bunch of guys it's like a I don't know what you want to call it a cougar type oh. movie yeah and. There was, fortunately, that was the year, which is pretty recently actually, where they got up in arms because there was no, uh, I don't know if it was any black-made films or black actors or whatever that had gotten nominations, and there was a big stink about that. And she said, "And they were saying, oh, yeah, it's unfair to black filmmakers or whatever. And she says, well, you know, saying that is ridiculous, and, you know, it's kind of unfair to, like, white filmmakers. And everybody's like, oh, my God, oh, horrible racist. You know, the bottom line is, it's like, do you really just want to gimme and a handout because, oh, wait, we got to make sure that we give something to every possible group out there that might be think they're marginalized or whatever. Let's make sure we give one to a woman director, make sure we give one to a, a gay director. Let's we'll sort of make sure one to you know really? Is that what mm. you want? Or do you want to just be on an even playing field and okay, you did a good job, we're not gonna hold you back. You won. That's really what it's supposed to be about. So maybe you guys didn't put out anything fucking worthwhile. And that's what I think she was trying to say. And, of course, you know, being intersectionalist, they made a stink out of it. So that's where I thought you were going to end it.
0: No, no, I didn't end it there. Actually, I just wanted to say I skipped some things because she really didn't have, like, she was in Broadchurch, the original BBC thing with David Tennant. Very good show. Have you seen that? It's really. I'd heard a lot of stuff about it. I've not seen it, though, no. Uh, You might want to see the original one, because it was so interesting that they tried to do an American version of this with the same cast, which is odd, because they're already in the third season. She was in that for about eight to ten episodes. Also, she was in Assassin's Creed. You're you're a gamer (laughs) guy. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> wow. <laughs> yo, I like Michael Fassbender, Marion Cotillard. I really like her. Oh, yeah. Uh, Jeremy Irons is in this thing, yo. And so, yo, on and on and on. I like, uh, Javier Gutierrez, Carlos, Carlos Bardi. A lot of interesting actors in this thing. And Charlotte Rampling is your excellency. Senior member of the Templar Elders. So you know she has a big part. Yes. If you're familiar at all with the game. The movie's a mess. It's a video game movie. We expect. Yeah, but the odd thing is that the director did a really highly received version of Macbeth the year before, and and and, you know pretty much the entire cast, bar uh, Rampling's in this thing, and it's like, wow, that's heavy. It's brutal. It's almost I would compare it to Polanski's Macbeth, maybe even better. The odd thing is, so he he's really into video games, so he makes Assassin's Creed film version. Which you can't always do film versions of video games. Unless oh, no, you're ooey Bowl. We should do an ooey Bowl show for a laugh. <laughs> no, it'd be ten minutes long. I hate it. It's fucked up. Let's go on next. So, um, so all I have to say is we uh, we really appreciate Charlotte Rambling yeah. and this is our first and probably one of our shorter shows. Yeah. Not because she's a woman, but because we've sure really yeah, we really nailed all the important titles that she was in, and I hope you guys really enjoyed listening to the show. Please check out things like Caravan to Vicaris, or however it's pronounced. I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing it. It's that's a, that's a fun movie. Please yeah. avoid Orca at all costs. Yes. <laughs> Especially if you're animal rights activist. You would not like that
1: film. No. Yes, to you. So I want to say Even beyond all the films And childhood and adult experiences Failed marriages And living arrangements There was one further incident That colored Charlotte's life Which was the suicide of her sister Mm. The two were quite close In their teens And in fact were a double act In the aforementioned cabaret bit That she had worked in their teens But there's a very telling quote She gives in relation to the incident Which is something A lot of folks I know personally Don't seem to really get About me as well Because what she says Defines a survivor A person fully capable Of standing on their own Regardless of circumstance She said I think that she Being her sister was more conventional than me she didn't have my wildness or my strength I know I have great inner strength I always have I can blank things out, cut people out and I know that I can go on and live in a cave on my own if necessary Put this one together with her earlier quote about pushing boundaries as a part of not only a healthy sex life, but as part and parcel of discovering who you actually are as a person, you know, necessary stop on the road to self-actualization and true existential authenticity, and you have a woman who's very much after my own heart, not only stunning, but strong, not only with a strong innate sense of humor towards the absurdities of life, which is obvious in her expressions and just about everything she's done, but One unafraid of what the peanut gallery and the Hoypole may think about you and your choices. Or as the late Ian Kilmeister once sagely worded it, they don't like it, fuck 'em. You got something running up the flagpole and see who salutes. Charlotte Rampling, I salute you. (laughs) A woman after my own heart. And again, you like you said about the films, there's a lot of good ones in here. You know, Stardust Memories, DOA, <laughs> like I said, Skip Orca for sure. Farewell, My Lovely, Car is The Night Porter if you're up to it. Even Zardoz in its own weird way. Vanishing Point if you want to just see it for five minutes. Even The Damned, you know, it's a strange thing. The Avengers episode that she did. This is all decent stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, I, yeah. I do recommend, if you have any interest, to go back and check her out. And if you do like Diana Rigg and The Avengers, the MPL's Peel's character, and the way that she puts across a sly, slightly cold, but definitely there, sexual uh, vibe throughout, you should also like Charlotte Rampling. It's very much the same thing. So, thanks for joining us tonight. We hope you enjoyed our little drawing room chat on Charlotte Rampling. Next time, we'll be talking another culture icon. The Next time around, we'll be taking on a Canadian actor and former radio newsman, hailing from New Brunswick and Nova Scotia in his younger days, and as such, it's probably no surprise that he hails mainly from Scotch stock with a bit of German in there for good measure. He double majored in, of all things, engineering and drama, quickly dropping all the dry bourgeois practicalities of applied math to pursue acting across Western Europe, doing a lot of work in cult British television and horror films, before finding a niche as a rebellious hippie outsider type in several celebrated war films of the late 60s and early 70s. The Dirty Dozen, Kelly's Heroes, The Eagle Has Landed, and he introduced the pivotal role of Hawkeye in the original film version of M.A.S.H., later to make Alan Alda quite possibly the biggest star of the 70s and off referenced as the sine qua non of the sensitive post-feminist new man of the decade. Front and center in a number of important films through the 70s, Clue, Don't Look Now, Eye of the Needle, some work he did with Fellini and Bernalucci, even Animal House, he closed the decade with an even more paranoid and effective update of the 50s sci-fi classic Invasion of the Body Snatchers, before falling into a long run of workaday films that kept the bills paid, but offered little of interest to the cult film aficionado. Well, there is Buffy the Vampire Slayer to contend with in the tween sci-fi boulderization of Battle Royale The Hunger Games hell he even wound up in a Kate Bush video so join us as we talk one of the true icons of 60s and 70s cinema and Canada's finest the one and only Donald Sutherland Stranger in a Strange Land the counterculture of Donald Sutherland if you'd like to contact us here comments, suggestions or you're a filmmaker or musician you'd like to join us on air drop us a line on our Facebook page facebook.com forward slash Weird Scenes one or our website weirdscenes1.wordpress.com. We're also on Twitter at weirdscenes 1, or you can follow us directly if you need to at thirdeyescinema.podbean.com. And of course, we're also on iTunes. I would suggest you look it up at some of the Third Eye Cinema and Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine podcast. Uh, the ID on thats four zero two zero four four. if you need it. So, anything else you want to add? Uh, no, no. Thank you. thank you all for listening and we uh, hope you enjoyed the show and we'll be back soon. Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine brought to you by the new and improved Third Eye Cinema slash Weird Scenes Network now on good. I'll, I'll see you next time. Yes.
0: Let's go back. I
1: 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Tune into Third Eye Cinema, your source for in-depth discussion of cult cinema, with a focus on film that matters—cult, grindhouse, drive-in, independent, and underground film from the dawn of the talkies through the early 90s. This is a forum where we explore genre film and music from around the world, in-depth conversation and career analysis with directors, actors, and musicians, and open discussion on films that matter—those that fall outside the mainstream corporate film by boardroom committee. These are the province of the auteur, the visionary, the dreamer, the outsider. None of that direct that passes for mainstream film these days. This is all about the glory days of independent cinema from all over the world, any of the hotbeds of obscure, oddball, or generally wild cinema available on DVD from the dawn of the medium to this very day. Join us as we delve deep into the cinematic netherworld here on Third Eye Cinema, Sundays at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific, on the Big Papa Online Network on Blog Talk Radio. What is at eye level? I reduct you out absurd and look at the headlines politics to pop culture from the corporate to the individual every monday at 6 p.m eastern we take a not so serious look at the serious issues of the day whether it's politics economics social issues music or old movies and tv shows we discuss everything the corporate media overlooks while making you laugh at the absurdity of it all hell you've got to have a sense of humor about life just look at the headlines so join me matt g and me, Doc Savage. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern as we navigate the sea of trolls, talking points, and trickery. We try to figure out a way to be there when tomorrow comes.
0: At iLevel, bringing more to you.
1: Only on the Big Papa Network on Blog Talk Radio. Join us on Tuesday nights at 6.30 Eastern for an exploration of the many roads and methods which promise to lead us to the ultimate answer, a higher purpose, the meaning of life.
0: I'm just like a lot of you, a middle-aged mom with piles of laundry and a meditation practice. I've been down many roads to get where I am today, and my journey is far from finished. But I'd like to share my experience and hard-earned wisdom with you. So what is it about women and spirituality? It seems like we're always the first to try out something new. Christianity was spread in large part by wealthy women. Where would Uncle Al be without a Scarlet women? Who is by and far the largest audience of new age alternative spirituality? What is it about us that always has us seeking? And why does it always seem that men tend to take over what we discover?
1: Join us for a dialogue between two long lost friends representing both the Yin and yang aspects of the whole, each of whom have traveled multifarious paths all across the spectrum of spirituality, the dark side and the light, from the organized to the out of the way.
0: This show is for all those frustrated in their quests who've been through various stops on the spectrum of spirituality and found them ultimately unfulfilling.
1: Join us for some hard-earned lessons and thoughts on potential new directions and possible value in what inevitably fails an organized practice, but which may have some merit to the solo practitioner, fellow seekers of truth, in this journey towards life.
0: Moving Towards Life. Lessons in life and spirituality from an unconventional seeker.
1: Bringing more to you, only here on the Big Papa Online Network.
0: On Blog Talk Radio.
1: Thursday night at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Join us for Weird Scenes Inside the Gold Mine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult
0: entertainment. Drop in for a spell with Doc Savage, Lois Paul, myself. Discuss the we love the creative the career, and the wonderful world of cult films, music, television, and more. We'll be covering classic films, shows, musicians, and
1: literature of the past, with an eye towards what new visions may still arise from the soul-asleep derivative mire of our
0: modern age. Tune in turn on and take a step outside the mainstream as we dig deep into the rich vein of coke cinema music and television right here on rear scenes inside the gold mine
1: only here on the big papa online network on blog talk radio <laughs>